Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Juliet Fonts, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John, thanks for having me. Hey, I have been a huge fan of yours for a long time, so this is an honor, and I'm so excited to share your message, your heart, your ideas with our community. It's going to be a blast, I can tell already. Hey, for the folks who don't yet know your name, your brand, your work, give us a snapshot of what you're doing today. Sure. Uh, Our company is called White Space at Work, and we help high-achieving teams to reduce busy work so they can execute better, which means we go into mostly companies, although we help people as well. In the companies, we help them with efficiency, which means the reduction of emails and meetings and decks and reports and paperwork and rework and fire drills and all the garbage that gobbles up the workday. And then we toggle them over to the effectiveness side, Mm -hmm. teaching them how to use thoughtfulness as the main driver of their business success as opposed to constantly relying on exertion. And we do it with little companies and big companies. And um, along the way, as you and I were talking about before, we bake in some applications on how this content and philosophy applies with our home lives, with our children, in our passions, um, because it's really universal and very, very flexible content. Well, speaking of home life and children, it sounds to me like you have a home life, you have children. Just a a snapshot (laughs) of what life is like at home for you. Sure. I have three beautiful, curious, blue-eyed boys who are seven and seven. They just always keep changing in ages, damn it. Seven, ten, and (laughs) twelve. And they are um, little, wonderful, chaotic pyromaniacs. And if something is either, can I use my camping knife or can I light this on fire or, hey, one of them's bleeding and that's the life of mothers and boys and you just kind of get used to it. Well, we also have three boys. We added a a little girl at the very end. So uh, we share your pain and also your joy. It's the best thing ever, and it's just it's such an incredibly qualitatively different experience than my friends with girls report. And I think, honestly, for me, it was the perfect... I think I, I dodged a bullet a little bit with the mother-daughter stuff, potentially, yeah. <laughs> based on my experience. Um, oh, it's just wonderful. It's really gorgeous chaos, you know, just the constant tumult of things being ripped and torn and thrown and piled up, and, um, but it's really beautiful. Well, I, I believe you're a self-described perfectionist. Yes, I've heard in this every before. way. Yeah. The beautiful thing about kids, there's a whole lot, but it, it is impossible to be a perfectionist uh, when you have a 7, a 10, and a 12-year-old boy <laughs> tearing it all up all the time. Yeah, I'll tell you my, my greatest perfectionistic challenge is that I love to bake, and I love to decorate cakes and make gorgeous pies. And so we'll always we'll be at the end of some process that's taken two and a half hours, and we take out that beautiful pastry tube, which is, for those of you who don't know, a plastic sleeve that's filled with frosting to make those gorgeous decorations. And I'm ready to do my art, which is my Zen meditation. And the boys, of course, want to go and you know just cover yes. with a pile of M&Ms and garbage and frosting. And you just got to go with the flow. You were born where, Juliet? New York, New York, Manhattan. And, uh, you know, childhood was what it was, but I, I think you shared with me that things started to really change and elevate and get really good for you in college. 
Yeah, and you know, even I, I, I know we're zipping by childhood because it was a it was a mixed time for me. My parents had some challenges, but my father, we should probably note just because it would be silly not to, was Alan Funt from the Candid Camera Show. Yes. And depending on the age demographic of your listeners, that name and that show brings one of the warmest memories back to people ever. And I only know this because I go to every single country and every single state and have people tell me these stories of Sunday night and a bowl of popcorn and everybody piled in laps. And, and um, so, so growing up inside of that, going to fourth grade in a chauffeur-driven car <laughs> had some very crazy manifestations in terms of the expectations you think of what the world is supposed to deliver to you. So I did, you know, just to kind of summarize some of the stuff we're going past, it was a wonderful time and it was also a, kind of a crazy time. It, it didn't exactly set you up with the most normal, realistic expectations of the world. But when well, I was in college... Well, can I stop you just for one moment? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. I it, talk really it, fast. I, no, it's so <laughs> fascinating and... Uh, you know, we, we, you and I decided, let's just dive right into the content today. But since you brought up Alan, your dad, did, did you know how, how different your life was than everybody else's life when you were in fourth grade in the back of a chauffeur-driven limousine? No, and that, you know, that's the thing that we try to be mindful of with our children in an affluent city like Los Angeles, that unless you're constantly showing children what the rest of the world lives and looks like, they don't know that they're in this exceptional bubble, and I didn't know. And it was funny, I was talking to a colleague just the other day about times when it, it always feels like I want to get to my business to the point where I don't need to work anymore. And we were talking about what is that feeling that money should just arrive, like mm-hmm. on a silver platter. And it, I think it really has to do with the way that you're raised. And luckily, I had a very voracious work ethic naturally, and it kind of bypassed a lot of that. But I think it's mm-hmm. an incredibly delicate thing. And I watched these children in our friendships of, you know, the play group and the friends and the school. And um, I'm so concerned that these children have no idea that it's not normal in the world to have a $130 pair of shoes. And they, I'm so concerned that, you know, they, they think that if their iPad isn't working for one second that they're a deprived child. And um, I hope our children are not being raised that way. We have an incredible amount of mindfulness about countering that messaging. But it's it's a pretty it's a pretty rocky thing. So I think that to to my parents frailty but only because of lack of education. They they didn't really walk us through any of that. We never saw anybody who was in need. We never traveled anywhere that wasn't beautiful. Um, I think it's important, and as soon as my boys are ready for those longer flights, we will be in places where people live in a house with dirt on the floor, just so they know what Mm -hmm. the rest of the world looks like. How have you found that balance in your own life? When you you are raised in the back of that chauffeur-driven car, how do you seek out the dirt-floored houses and uh, the flights that take you not to to the Ritz-Carlton on some gorgeous property, but also also the places that are full of pain and joy. How how have you kept that balance in your life, Juliet? So I'm a natural traveler and I love to travel and I married a travel photographer. So that was an easy thing to kind of decide that we were going to see a lot of the world. And we saw, we spent our honeymoon in Africa and we spent a full five weeks there seeing a whole lot of stuff. And before that I had done some traveling by my own, but I still honestly have a 
have an over an over emotional vulnerability that I can I can only kind of see so much of it, and then mm-hmm. it, it messes me up a little bit. Like I've been afraid to go to India, which is a travel destination that my husband has wanted to go to for ten years, and I just feel that there's a certain porousness that I have that I just might not be able to have a healthy separation between the sadness that I would see or the worry that I would have for those folks. And so it's a little bit of a delicate balance for me. And I want to, I want to do the same for my children because mm-hmm. they're sensitive too. I want them to see enough to give them objectivity, but I don't want to see, I don't want them to see so much that they feel like they're being made to feel guilty for the things that they enjoy in their own life. And I do think that as a parent, that's a constant delicate balance. I also try, we try to be very aggressive with budgeting and being very overt about the value of money in our home, even at times when money is flowing beautifully and we're very abundant and lucky. We try to talk about why is this butter $2 yes. more than this butter and why are these eggs $1.50 more than these eggs and really have them understand. And now the children are mimicking that in a really exciting way where they're starting to say, is this really worth our money? And, and that's the kind of awareness that we want them to grow up with. We, we hope that they'll grow up with. Well, you are being a phenomenal teacher to your own little guys, but you also received phenomenal teaching yourself. And you were starting to talk about college before I brought you back to fourth grade and the limousine yeah. rides. Talk about college for a little bit. So college was, um, I went to Northwestern and I was in the theater department, which was just an ecstatic experience for anyone who had a performer's soul. At the time, I thought I wanted to be a repertory theater actor and do Shakespeare and Shaw and Ibsen and live in little uh, crappy (laughs) apartments doing (laughs) five-week stints in repertory theater. And um, and I met a man named Frank Galati, who was really the first mentor. After sort of a tumultuous teen years for me, he was really the first mentor that absolutely drew me in with his inspiring qualities. And the thing about Frank, he was incredibly busy and he was incredibly successful and he ran large parts of the Goodman Theater, which was the largest theater in downtown Chicago and the most well-reputed. But he would fly into the room and he would toss his bag in the seat and then he would sit down and then, boom, he was 100% with you. And he would stare in your eyes And he was so present, it was almost like everything else in the room just disappeared Mm. when you were talking to him. And I remember creating almost an addictive craving for that experience of being with someone who was so present with me, because that had not been a lot of my experience. And I wanted to be with him more and do more with him, and I excelled in theater and I excelled in performance. And when I graduated from college and decided that I didn't want to be a performer, I went into some master's classes for organizational development, but those performer chops that I had developed with him, they never went away, and they actually have served me in every single juncture of my extended career, not just the part where I'm on stage in front of people doing keynotes. Um, Just the ability to be aware of yourself, the way you speak, the way you talk, the way you sit, um, you know, the way you are present with people, those chops I think everybody should have. Those chops serve us well, but they're not commonplace in the marketplace that we are all living in. What was it about Frank that you think freed him to be so present with you? What are the characteristics that allow us to be super present, Juliet? I think that Frank was a wonderful demonstration of living into the thing that gives you joy. He was lucky enough that his vocation and his avocation were the same thing. And he was always thrilled to be doing the work. But I think also he was a generous partner in that when on days when sh- I'm sure there were days 
where he had a fight with his partner or wife or whether he had a bad bank account balance. I'm sure there were days that we never knew. Mm -hmm. And he was so generous in the way that he unfailingly masked that. And in four years, I never saw him show up for anybody with less than that sense of generous, excited presence. He made you feel like you were just the most fun thing that he'd ever experienced, like you were the greatest, most inspiring, interesting person that he'd ever talked to. And if we could give others that sense, especially so many others who don't have that naturally or from childhood, yeah. uh, what a difference that would make. How old was he when you when you got to know him? Frank was 50s, I guess. You know, it's funny when you're in your 20s, you have no idea. how He, yeah, he looked old, but he probably old. was 42 or something. Right. Um, uh, I haven't stayed in touch with him in a long time. It's nice to bring this up. Maybe I'll reach out and see what he's up to. He's also a very, very hard man to reach. He was technology-averse even then, and I think more so now. And, um, you know, somewhere there's an old-fashioned landline ringing alone in an empty <laughs> house that Frank's not answering. <laughs> I love um, it. But maybe some Chicago listener out there is his pal, and we'll reconnect. I, I, I expect that to happen. So, Juliet, a- a- after this, when you exit stage left, where do you go next? So I, I was a theater person for a while and a performer, and then there was this very clear moment in my early 20s when I realized that I did not enjoy pretending to be other people. I liked communicating, and I liked the performance aspect, and I liked the humor, but I didn't enjoy the character idea that you pretend to be somebody else. And so I went back to school And I started taking classes in communication and organizational development. And that was when I really made a right turn into the speaker, trainer, consultant lifestyle, started learning what that was about. I started keynoting almost 20 years ago, coming up now, originally on other topics, and then 14 years ago started talking exclusively on white space. And that's been the only thing that I've been up to professionally for 14 years. We actually started the formal company, the training company, five years ago. Yes. But there was a nine-year period where I was on the road and being with people and doing workshops and developing the content that was purely white space. And it's, I say a lot of times, I didn't come naturally to content that's about slowing down and being less busy and being thoughtful. I came to it because it is the fascinating polar yes. opposite of my original personality. I am the most driven, tech-addicted, workaholic, go-go, Manhattan gal that you've ever met. So this contrary action of the idea of white space is, I think, what keeps me interested going into the second decade. So right now, my hope is that our listeners are grabbing their little journals and their pens and opening up their minds a little bit wider because you just just name-dropped the words white space. For those who are unfamiliar with it, what does it mean to you? Oh, yes. I didn't even realize we hadn't gone there. So we define white space as a strategic pause that is taken between activities. And these little pauses, whether they're a half a second or three seconds or 45 minutes, they are laced through the busyness of our days, and then they become the oxygen that allows everything else to catch fire. So when we learn, instead of reacting, 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 mm-hmm. and picking up the next task all day long, to have these little sips where we step back, or we take a breath, or we strategize, or we digest what we just heard, or we prepare, these little sips of thoughtfulness and consideration completely shift the way that we work, or live, or are with our children, or really do anything else. And we believe that this thoughtful time that lurks in between the busyness is the number one most endangered ingredient of modern connected life, and it is our mission to reinsert it into the lives of people and companies, and that's what we do. 
I think we know the answer, but I'd like to hear it from an expert. Why is there so little white space out there right now? It's a, it is an endlessly fascinating thing. So I think that there's a couple reasons. Some people say it's the pivot of the invention of the smartphone, which certainly was a hard moment in the world of thoughtfulness. Some people say that it was 2008, 2009, when all people in business sold their souls and realized how frightened they were about the future and that they could just buckle down and take the pain no matter what their companies threw at them. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot, a lot of different reasons. Some of the ones that I think now are pertinent, one of them which we think is comically ironic all the time is we're too busy to become less busy. (laughs) So, So we have this sense that there's this chaotic, problematic way that the pace of our life exists, but because every morning we have to keep riding that ride, we can never step back enough to see what we might let go of or cut or learn new skills. And so it's, it's this endless surrender to the busyness. Um, I also think in businesses, part of it is that we do not examine costs. And that's where we in our consultative work come in a lot with companies. There are top-line costs to a lack of thoughtfulness because ideas are the fuel of growth in companies. And when you're too addled to have great ideas, mm-hmm. then you can't grow. There are human costs human beings, wellness and sanity and humanity and bodies are paying a terrible price. And then there's the bottom line cost, which is really where we are starting to stake our claim in some interesting territory for corporations. We tend to see about a million dollars of annual waste for every 50 people in an organization when you identify busy work as waste. So when you take the emails and the meetings and interruptions and all that garbage, and you quantify it according to the value of the employee's time, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars. And one of our mission statements is to try to help companies get out of denial about this ridiculous drain on their talent and their capacity and their bank accounts. You know, we're going to kind of dance both sides of the aisle today together, you and I, talking about businesses, but also what that means for us as individuals. So when you're, when you're, talking us through millions and millions and millions of dollars of lost productivity and bottom line impact. What does that mean to your average Joe or Juliet out there who uh, is just kind of going through life busy? Yeah, it's such a great question. So it means, let's say, uh, Joe gets up in the morning at 545 because he has a 6 a.m. conference call with China before the day starts, and he's too tired and he's exhausted, and he didn't really get to sleep till 1 because he was thinking about some stupid thing in business. He pushes through that call, and then he slogs to work. He has two espressos to get there. He's working really hard, but he's always kind of feeling this little sense of a gap between what he could be doing and what he is doing because he's so fried. And he goes to meetings and meetings and meetings, but he never has time to digest any of it. And he gets home at the end of the day, and he's trying to pay attention to his kids, but he keeps checking email during dinner. And finally, he tries to sleep, but he can't, so he has a little Jack and Coke because his mind won't shut off. And then he's up till 1, and then it starts all over again. And that's what it looks like for people. And it's not a pleasant way to live and work, Mm. even if you're sacrificing your your personal life, even if you said, I'm sacrificing my personal life or my health or my wellness for work, even in the work, they feel unsatisfied because they can sense this uh, lack of being totally on their game and focused and vital because they're just fried. And it's not every person, but this is such a, a dependable generalization as I see it, over and over and over. And, you know, the funny thing is we have all sorts of people on this line, right? So I had a wonderful woman come up to me who said, 
I'm so busy and I never stop moving and I never give time to myself and I have this and she's listing all the things, this and this and this and this to do. She's a lovely older woman with kind of white hair, very vital. I said, you sound uh, you sound really overloaded. May I ask what you do? She said, oh, I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a it's a hunger that is fueled by the metronome of our culture. And it almost doesn't matter what you do. You feel like it's never enough at the end of the day, so you jam a little bit more in the end of the day. And it it does apply both at work and home. It applies to our poor, overscheduled children in 17 after-school activities in the course of a yes. week. It applies everywhere. You surprised me when you brought up on one of your videos that I saw online, the thieves of productivity. Because mm. I wasn't expecting you to share what you shared. And then after you shared it, I realized, actually, that's exactly right. So for the listeners right now, Juliet, share with us, I think there are four, the four yes. thieves of productivity. So... We found, I'll just give you a little background to the thieves before I dive into them. So we found that one of the problems of busy work and busyness is that every person feels like it's their unique fault. So there's a kind of a pervasive guilt in the culture if I could just find the right podcast or filing system or if I could do something different, then this would feel different. And what people don't realize is that they're at the mercy of a lot of external forces. So we studied busy work. And we found that there were 33 different reasons that people are overloaded and busy. And when we distilled them and we put them into categories, we found that they they actually represented four main drivers that fueled overload. But the irony and the surprise is that they were all positive things. They were assets that had then run amok. And we call those the thieves of productivity. So I'm going to say them in a minute, but when I say them, you're going to say, wait a minute, maybe that's the surprise you were talking about. Mm -hmm. These are positive things. So the thieves are drive, excellence, information, and activity. And you think, well, I wouldn't want to hire anybody who wasn't driven and excellent and active and had a lust for information. But what happens in the age of overload amidst the tyranny of the urgent, drive turns into overdrive very easily. Excellence turns into perfectionism. Information turns into information overload, and activity turns into frenzy. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is we stay in this pace and cadence where we're stimulated, and we're checking off a lot of little tiny boxes, and we're moving through our to-do lists, and often we're not touching anything of rich historical significance in our work. We're just getting stimulated, and that's what the thieves do. And there's a lot of adrenaline. There's a lot of dopamine in the thieves. Um, and each one of us is more prey and less prey to different thieves. So they're personality-based. When we, when we work with companies, we do a developmental assessment to show people which of the thieves is dominant for them and what they can do about it. And so every one of us kind of falls prey to them in a different way. You're, you're falling prey, I, I believe, to excellence. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's definitely mine. So I talk about it all the time. Many of you know, folks who check out podcasts like these, podcasts and books that you can learn and grow and become an even better version of yourself, frequently are those striving toward excellence, which is lovely unless we go overboard. So what have you done and then what can we do to, to appropriately dance toward excellence without losing our soul in the process? So the most important line of demarcation to create in yourself is the line between tactically relevant excellence and habitual or recreational excellence. So you only have a certain amount of excellence in the course of the day. Let's say you imagine a little uh, princess bride type little pouch of gold coins on your hip. 
And that little pouch is all the excellence you have for the day. If you spend a coin on every single thing you touch, you're never going to have enough Mm -hmm. and you're going to run out. So to, to learn to parse, I'll give you the business version first as a person to sit down at the beginning of a business day and say, which of the 12 things that I'm going to touch today deserve a coin of excellence? And which is absolutely a place where good enough is good enough with no tactical impact to my business. So for instance... Uh, when you're doing an internal report or sending a casual email to someone who works with or for you or as a peer, there is no need to look at it the way that you would have for an external-facing presentation. But mm-hmm. perfectionists like to do every single thing perfectly. If you're a mom and you're put in charge of organizing the Christmas gifts for the teachers and you would really, really love to go to town with cute little envelopes with hand-stenciled this, and sometimes that's beautiful and it's perfect and you have the time to do that. Sometimes your family or your sleep or your body is suffering, and you know what? A cute little Chipotle gift card is just fine, and they love it and they appreciate it. And so learning to parse the difference is a muscle over and over and over to ask yourself, where is good enough, where is good enough, where is good enough, not to compromise certain things that you care right. about. And I have, to, I have to stress that point because I have the most stunning business card in the history of business <laughs> because I sent it back four times. And that is, everyone who knows me will say that's the most Juliet thing that anybody, has. but now I'm holding one. It's white. It's gorgeous. There's not a single little imperfection in the way the edges are cut. I love the paperweight. The turquoise is finally right. It makes an enormous difference in my business to hand this to somebody every single day and feel thrilled about it. And so that's a place where it's worth it. And it seems silly to other people, but for me internally, it's worth it. Then there are other places where, Oh, and I'll tell you a great piece my husband actually just added with this. We were talking about optimizers versus simplifiers. So I think it's Scott Adams. Say those two words again. So Scott Adams from Dilbert talks about optimizers versus simplifiers. Okay. So my husband is a simplifier, and I am an optimizer. And simplifiers just enjoy the simplicity. So if we go out to dinner, he wants to pick a place that takes one minute to find on the internet, and it's fine. And it's the first Italian place we see in Denver, but it's really, truly fine, and it's four stars, and let's go. I would like to read the reviews of 25 Italian restaurants to make sure that we're optimizing the perfect experience for our one Italian meal in Denver. And this is another line of demarcation that I've been playing with recently that I think is really, really fun, the optimizer simplifier piece, because there are lessons that both of us have to learn from the others, a kind of get-in, get-out simplifier attitude versus the optimizer or the perfectionist. Yep, go ahead. Well, no, I was just saying I've been playing with it personally. That's, I think that it's I'm, I'm curious what you've learned as, you, as you're moving forward, though. Yeah, so I I think that much to my chagrin, I have to admit that there's some places where the simplifier thing actually works really well. And I've just been lightly experimenting with it. We were going on a vacation. We had to choose an Airbnb, and I was doing what I usually do, which is spending two hours looking at every Airbnb. But instead, I just said, what would a simplifier do? And I found two, and one was better, and I booked it, and nobody died. And this is that kind of learning that is really hard for perfectionists to let go of. But that piece of language, that new piece of language for me was helpful also uh, in terms of yet another framework to understand what the benefits are of letting go. Juliet, you, you mentioned the four thieves, and the fourth one you mentioned was productivity. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. was activity. activity. Activity, yes. And, and that's actually a very big—you just accidentally— 
touched on a really giant topic, which is what is the difference between activity and productivity. So we, we can talk more about that. Well, but gosh, head the, where you were heading. There's a gulf and a gap between the two. And yet we think when we are sprinting kids around or through emails or into meetings that we are being both productive, productive and active. Right. Explain to me the gap. <clears throat> pardon me. Explain to me the gap and, uh, and how we can own the productive piece without being buried by the active piece. Right. So productive means to produce, to make something of value. And activity means to move around a lot and sweat and check a lot of boxes. And they're two different things. So one of the thought exercises that we play with with executives, if you had a team that sat in a room all day long, and they really sat, they had legal pads and a pen, and they stared out the window at a river, and they doodled, and they pondered, and they thought. And then at 445, They had a giant game-changing breakthrough idea that changed the nature or the course of your business product or service. Would that have been a productive day? Mm. Yes, of course, it would have been a a champagne day. But it would not have looked like we think productivity looked. It would not have involved lots of motion and interaction and checking boxes and tasks crossing off. And this is the gulf that we think is so pernicious for modern business. So then how do we, as parents, as spouses, as partners, as business owners, as nurses, create that white space to be productive uh, and not overly active, to find the information but to do it in balance, to be excellent but not overboard, and and to have drive but not to be buried by the movement forward? Yeah, so it's it's a hard process. So the first thing is to... Uh, It's actually already happened for the listeners, the very first step, which is we've moved the thieves now from unconscious to conscious. And that's an incredibly critical thing. When you are aware, when you can then be sitting next week in your office realizing that you've planned nine projects for the same month and you can say, oh, that's the thief of drive. I see it. I see it happening to me. That consciousness is a gigantic part of the battle. What we then teach is we teach a set of four core questions that mm-hmm. help people combat the thieves. And I will say them to you, but we can put them, I hope, in the show notes so yes. that people don't have to be wildly scribbling while I'm talking. We'll is do that... both, but I, I love them to wildly scribble. So we'll do both. Okay. You, ladies okay. and gentlemen, start wildly scribbling Scribble and along. they'll be in the show notes. Yes. So here's the four questions. They are the antidote to the thieves. Uh, you should put them on your, well, we actually have decals. You can, you can put them on your wall. You should write them on the top of your to-do list. They filter everything in a very effective way. So here are the questions. Yep. Is there anything that I can let go of? Where is good enough good enough? What do I truly need to know? And what deserves my attention? Mm. And if you're paying attention, they map back to Mm -hmm. each thief. So drive needs to hear, is there anything I can let go of? And excellence needs to hear, where is good enough, good enough? And information needs to hear, what do I truly need to know? And activity needs to hear, what deserves my attention? And these four questions live really at the heart of our content, and they're so nimble and they're so amazing. You can use them over and over and over, individual level, team level, organizational level, and I'll give you the spectrum of how broadly they can work. You could be in a giant multi-thousand person company and saying, what do we need to let go of? And the answer is we need to let go of the South American market or we need to let go of a new product that we're thinking of. Giant, giant applications 
all the way down to tiny things of a family trying to get ready for bed and realize that, you know, tonight we have to let go of the kids doing their chores because we were out late and it'll make us rushed and it'll be not peaceful to be trying to get everything in before bedtime. In any way that you use them, um, they will help you create what we call a reductive mindset. And this is really the new frontier that everybody needs to start walking into in order to participate in what the future of work needs to look like and maybe the future of life to be reductive, to strip away and let go and say no thank you and renounce. And this is where we all have to get a very strong muscle built because life has gotten too full and it's just going to keep getting fuller. And we have to have a very strong muscle of letting go. Help me, you know, muscle mass is developed by stretching repeatedly the same muscle. Okay. So do me a favor, help me and then help our listeners begin to develop that reductive mindset. Help us start stretching that muscle. What what are some activities we can take on in addition maybe to asking those four questions day after day so that we can grow in this skill set? Sure. So I'll give you a corporate version first because that's where we spend a lot of our time. Um, You might want to try something called the red box exercise, which is to get with your team, put up big poster board all over the walls, and start writing down all the junk that you need to do, everything that you can think of on your to-do list and Mm -hmm. your goal list. And you can do this as a family as well. Then you take a red pen and you put a box around the three most critical, juicy, important things on that entire wall. And then everything else can be on the chopping block. Mm. You look at the questions and you walk the list and you say, what can we let go of? What can we let go of? What are we doing that we don't truly need to know? Where are we not putting our attention where it deserves? And then you start to practice being reductive. Now, I'll tell you what usually happens with executives, just so you know, and so people have realistic expectations. I'm actually thinking of this one group. Uh, the leader's name is Kenton. They're a group in the Midwest. And I remember them doing this. They're doing the red box there. And we say, okay, go. And this is when we were on site with them personally facilitating this. We say, okay, go. Go to your lists and come back with the things that you're going to stop doing. And they ponder and they walk and they look and they make notes and they come back and they say, uh, there's nothing that we can let go of. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because it wouldn't be on the list in the first place if it, if it didn't feel important to you. Yes. So you should be prepared for it to feel rather impossible for things to be let go of. But once you kind of put that first crack in, and once you realize that you're driving your child a half an hour to a gymnastics class that they marginally enjoy because you think maybe later it will be good for them in some way, and you just stop doing that, and you realize that nothing happens bad in the world, or you're a corporate leader who makes everybody do a quarterly report that nobody ever reads, and Mm -hmm. you just stop doing that, and you realize nothing bad happens in the world, sometimes it takes that first try to realize that it's not as scary as you think, and then people begin to develop a stronger and stronger confidence. But I tell you that story about Kenton's team because it actually isn't easy. Nothing is on the list in the first place because right. it seems stupid or unnecessary to us. You're an expert in white space for coming into life and corporate work from that mindset. What what concerns you most about the way you see the majority of us leading and managing and living today? Mm, oh, my God, that's a whole podcast. Just that, that question is a whole podcast. So there is definitely the sanity and humanity element 
we had a, uh, a large sportswear company give us a phone call because two people in their innovation de- department had a stroke in the same year. Mm. And it took that for them to realize that these 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. highly caffeinated days of no lunch except for a power bar were not good for people. And I have to tell you, just I interacted with two companies this week who everybody would know the name of. And you, I just, I have to tell you honestly, I get in the Uber at the end of spending time with them and I say, <laughs> I don't think I could do that for three days. Yes. And it's it's amazing what they have trained their minds and their bodies to, to accept and to tolerate. So I'll give you a couple different answers. So from the very, very macro level in companies, here's the biggest thing that I think is going on that's a problem. Either companies are not doing anything to reduce this problem of busy work. 80% of companies acknowledge the problem. Only 8% say they have any solution or plans to create any solution that fix it. So that's a gigantic problematic gap. Or they are fixing the problem, but they only are using three of the four necessary ingredients to do so. And this is often where we come in. So companies traditionally are doing reorgs. They think, oh, we need to simplify. We'll move people around to different seats. That, that's part of it. They do technology improvements. That's part of it. And the third one is they do classic process improvement, which is like lean, six sigma, or standard work type process improvement. But they always seem to forget the fourth critical recipe ingredient, which is human beings' habits. Mm-hmm. They don't teach people how to say, I'm not needed in this meeting, or I'm going to develop the impulse control not to interrupt you five times in a day, or I'm going to take a real vacation so that I could return refueled. And all those softer human habit pieces are often missing, and that's kind of where we end up coming in. Then you trickle down to the next level. You say, what are the mistakes people are making? Senior leaders often are very, very torn between their pressures of profitability and what they perceive as the need to drive people hard and the way that they actually love and care for their teams and wish that work was not so torturous. And the senior leader sits in between these two yes. desires just ripped it's in a lot two. of tension. Ripped in two, yeah, because they could see it. They could see that these people are missing their children. They can see they're overloaded. Um, the, the biggest mistake that I think those leaders are making is that they don't talk about that with their teams, that they feel that they have to silently bear the tension between those two goals where if they actually began dialogue about it, it might be the beginning of them moving from the 80% that don't do anything about it to the 8% that do because they would get some more human real-time feedback from their people about how hard it is for them and it would prompt them into that healthy discomfort where they would start doing things differently because the really great news for all those leaders out there is there are incredibly easy things you can do to begin to simplify the way that people work. But again, that too busy to become less busy, they're just sitting there taking the pain and they're not doing it. Juliet, as you go on the road and catch the flights and you do your Skype and everything else that you're doing, you're riding, you're coaching, you're speaking, yep. you're traveling, you're living and leading. Oh, and by the way, you have three boys. You're mm-hmm. married, you're a traveler, you're a sojourner, you're a grower, and uh, you're a lady walking through life. How do you dance that aisle? between this call to share your message and share your heart and of actually living your message and following your heart? That's the best question. Um, One of the things that's hard about being a perfectionist is no matter how well you do it, you will create a reason why it's not good enough. (laughs) And I have to tell you, it's one of the most vulnerable things for me, this, this question of the perfect 
balance. It happens to be my 51st birthday today. And I decided. Hey, happy I would, birthday! What a great way to spend you. it with our fa- our family. It actually is great, and I I got I decided that I was going to have a day where I got to do all the bad stuff this morning. So I was up at five forty five, and I went and ate two donuts for breakfast, and it was just amazing. And I don't think I've had a donut in about five years. <laughs> and I was driving around, just taking a minute to connect with higher voice, higher power, inner self, whatever you call that thing that guides you. Um, And this was the topic of the conversation was maybe at 51 it's the time to stop making it not good enough no matter how perfect my balance is. And I will tell you that I travel less than people think. Mm -hmm. I work less than people think. My balance is pretty amazing for someone who's built what we have built, which is, uh, you know, a global brand now that's really starting to, to go places. But it's always hard because there's a big part of me that also wants to be, I could have very happily been a stay-at-home mom and loves to be the one making the little notes and the lunches and never missing anything. And so it's a, it's a tricky balance. And then one of the things that I've become so grateful for is you realize that as an entrepreneur you have what most people do not have, which is I still work far less hours than what would be a full-time job for anybody else, and I don't ever have to miss, you know, something if there's a recital or a graduation or a, something that I need to go to, usually I have the flexibility to do that. But it's pretty excruciating. In the first 10 years of my career when I was having the kids, the way that I achieved that balance was I took a baby and a babysitter with me on every flight and every gig for the first two years. <laughs> oh, that is so miserable. I, it was really hard, but I never slept away from them for the first two years one time. I think the third guy got gypped a little bit. I think he was 22 one month or something like that because he was so mature and he was the third. So that was how I did it when they were babies. Then there was a very uh, pretty easy time when I was only keynoting before developing the company where I was still able to keep my work to the neighborhood of 20 hours a week and it was very manageable. In the five years that we've built the actual company, it's been harder. Um, There's been lean-in that I've had to do, but I'm already coming up on the hill where I can start pulling back from that a little bit and I think the five-year push was worth it. It's a hard one, especially when you don't want to delegate raising your children. And there are people who, for whom that works for them, and that's what they need to do, but it doesn't work for me. Juliet, when, when people hear you speak, they follow your videos, they read your work, they follow your coaching outlines, what do you hope is different and better in their work and in their lives afterwards? We hope predominantly they have more time to think. We hope that they have learned to take what we call recuperative white space, which is the white space to reboot your exhausted brain and body. We hope that they are powerful at saying no to low-value garbage, that they've developed a reductive mindset, that they go home much closer to 5 o'clock than they did before, and um, maybe that they have intellectual permission to be in a moment of nothingness and not feel instantly uncomfortable and guilty. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the most important ones. That moment where we just, we caught ourselves, we're sitting in the backyard and we notice that we're sort of watching a bird and that feeling comes like, oh, I should be doing something. And to learn to talk back to that feeling and realize that it's, that it's a villain in our heads, <laughs> I think is one of the most important things of white space. You know, my, my neighbors probably think there's something wrong with me because I, I sit outside in this, under this huge chair uh, under this huge tree in this beautiful black chair, and I just sit there all the time. 
Mm. And I, I love it. And they walk by me probably thinking, oh, the poor guy's losing his mind already. He's only 40 <laughs> years old. And I don't care. I mean, for me, it's a great place to just sit and listen to the bird talking back to me. And it, it's perfect. It's probably why you're so successful. And you remember, remember, I'm not the perfect white space pupil because I'm a work maniac. So when I take my white space, sometimes it's even in small sips. But it is amazing how effective. If I take five full yes. minutes and I just allow myself to do absolutely nothing. I could have gotten up at 2 a.m. on the East Coast for a 7 a.m. sound check, and I'm getting on a 9 p.m. flight, and all I need is a couple sips of that time to reboot and reconnect, and I feel better. Julia, where can people learn more about your work? So they can go to whitespaceatwork.com, and we also talked about we want to give them a complimentary tool, right, that they can bring back to Mm -hmm. their teams. So let me tell you about that tool. We have a partnership with an amazing event called the Global Leadership Summit. It's the largest leadership event in the world, and I was lucky enough to speak there last summer. What they did is they studied people who have uh, go to events, or I guess it would even apply to listening to a podcast, someone who hears content for, from a single day's event. But if that person takes a learning action following that inception of the content, they have a 154% increase in the outcomes that they want to achieve through the learning of that content. So we always provide a learning action that you can take following an interview or a podcast. And here's the one we're going to give your listeners. We're going to give them the first three lessons of our full digital learning course for free. We're going to give them to them with a very prescribed way that they can share them either with their team at work or even with their family. They're 13-minute lessons. We want them to do one lesson a week for three weeks and then meet on the fourth week to discuss application ideas. And although you could show or play this podcast to your uh, others at work, it will not be as organized a manner of translating these tenants into your work stream as using these three short digital lessons. So if people want to take that course and bring it home, they and their whole team can sign up at whitespacetrial.com. Perfect. And we, of course, will have links to all this in the show notes but White Space is a beautiful site. It's an awesome landscape to live and lead your life. And Juliet, as you know, on every Live Inspired podcast episode, we have seven questions that we wrap up the show. Okay. So uh, here we go, lady. I, hope I only know number seven, so I'm excited. I hope you are buckled up because you, you may need to be uh, you may need to be tethered in for these. Number one, <laughs> what is the best, most impactful book you've ever read? Matthew Fox, The Meaning of Work. Tell me about it. I've, I've not heard of it. He's actually a, an evangelical pastor who's no longer a pastor. And it is a beautiful uh, book that I read actually many years ago, so I'm not going to be able to rattle off as much quickly as you like, but it set the tone for me of the idea that work had an inspirational and passionate component to it. Mm. That it's a beautiful, beautiful book, Matthew Fox. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving (laughs) you, my friend, with millions and millions of dollars. What would you do with that newfound wealth? So my philosophy is a third to charity, a third to fun, and a third to savings for any money that comes into our world. So a third for fun, we travel, we travel, we travel, we travel. A third for charity, we find causes that we are moved by, and a third for the future because you never know. Hmm. If your house caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing, one item, uh, what would you grab? So you have to understand that it's 
December 7th, 2017, and we were talking last night about whether we have to hose down our house because of the yes. California wildfires. Yes. So that question, I got a little it's thrown. Um, if I had to grab one thing. Mm. I would say the box of the kids' creations. Just walk me through the box super quickly. What are a few of the little things in there? Yeah, it's a Britex paper box that's empty, filled with, obviously, drawings. Um, my son is a, a tinker, so there's homemade arrows. There's a homemade <laughs> miniature canoe that's sewed out of an old leather skirt that I didn't want anymore. There's a tiny little crossbow that's made out of two hairpins from a book called The Dangerous Book of Boys. Mm. There are lanyards, and if anyone has never heard the wonderful poem, <laughs> The Lanyard, you have to go online and yes. absolutely Google Billy Collins' The Lanyard. Um, you know, one of the things I'll tell you, we are uh, in a t- last night, we put the kids to bed with them worried about the fact that there are three large California wildfires that are, we smell smoke and the kids are staying home from school. And we talked about what we would take. And there really isn't almost anything that we need from this house. I mean, it was a fascinating, fascinating conversation to think of all the stuff. Obviously, it'd be hard for me if I didn't have my laptop to run my business Mm -hmm. because the backups would also be in the house, so I might grab that. Um, There's just not that much. As long as you had the five of us, it's just there's just not yes. that much, and it's amazing when you finally put that lens on and you walk around. It's hard to think of stuff. Well, and I asked the question for two reasons. One is because frequently there is that keepsake, that that beautiful family gift that's been fourth generation, and you want to pass it on to the fifth. Mm. That box of drawings and arrowheads that the little kids made. So this beautiful stuff. That's part of it. But the other reason I asked the question is to remind our guests and all of our listeners and friends how little we actually need. Because frequently people end the answer by saying, you know what, the rest of it can burn. Just let mm-hmm. it burn. And at the end of the day, you don't want to have it burn. You want to have it there. You love your home. You love your belongings. You love the couch and your paint. But you have your kids. You have your health. You have, you have your spiritual journey. You have what you need, and it, it's enough. So mm-hmm. as we switch gears now, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day, just perfect, and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead. Juliet, who would you have that conversation with? Oh, that's really easy. That's a guy named Russell Friedman. And um, Russell was sort of a second father to me and was incredibly, incredibly close to me. And then kids came along, and he lived an hour away, and I talked to him less. He was instrumental in me forming my career, in me choosing my husband, in me learning how to love myself. He was amazing to me. And we hadn't talked in a while, and I was sitting on the steps at our uncle's house at Thanksgiving, and my brother texted me a text that said, I'm sorry I heard about Russell. And I wildly started texting back, and then he wasn't answering. It turns out that because I made a choice that I am not on Facebook, that I missed the fact that six months ago that he had gotten a severe form of cancer Mm. and that everybody else who loved him and had been close to him had been able to bring him food and support him and love him and say goodbye. And because I'm not on Facebook, I didn't know. And he died, and I never got to say anything to him. And it was a very hard loss for me. It's like a universally hard loss because... 
that was a choice. The Facebook choice is a good one for my life, but it had a really big price that day. Uh, so that would be him. What, what would you say to him now? If you had that opportunity on that bench, what, what would you say to Russell? I would say that I wish that I told you more often how much I love you and how much you meant to me and that I wish that I had been willing to drive more often over mm. to your side of the town just to have lunch and and stay connected. It's so hard sometimes after kids and things shift where those recreational yes. lunches that are an hour away just seem really, really far away. What's the best advice that Russell or anyone else you respected or read or have learned from has ever taught you? So what's the best advice you've ever received? Hmm. You know, Russell would say to me (laughs) often, stop being mean to my friend. (laughs) And he would say that at times when that perfectionistic voice of it's never enough, it's never enough, never good enough would come up. And I think stop being mean to my friend is probably the sound, you know, the the phrase that comes back to me. Because that feeling of wanting ourselves to be better, more indifferent, I think is one of the most pernicious and constant eroders of our joy. Mm. I think I'm not the only one who suffers from it. And um, you can achieve amazing things in the world and still have it. It's rather an amazingly persistent sound. So I think stop being mean to my friend would probably be way up there. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? That things would get better, that you'll find your way, Mm. that love is out there. The children will be the best thing ever, but you got to wait a little while. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. F- finally, my friend, you have you have run the gauntlet. You've made it through it all, except for question <laughs> number seven. So Russell is proud of you. He's cheering you for it. But here we go. It has been said, Juliet Funt, that all great people, and I have one seated across from me on this phone line right now, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Julia Font, how would you like your one sentence to read? She gave pleasure to herself and others is where we came with that. And I'll tell you the story of that was I said to my boys in the car yesterday, I said, I'm going to be on a podcast. And the man says, I have to have a sentence for my whole life. (laughs) And my 10-year-old said, well, Einstein said that the meaning of life is to give pleasure to yourself and others. And we all thought, that's really... They said, that's you, Mommy. And I thought, that's true. That's my mission is to suck the bones, the marrow of the joy of life, to have every possible beautiful experience in the short time that you can and never miss the fact that you have a duty to give and give and give to people who aren't as lucky as you. Well, Juliet Font, on your 51st birthday, you have given pleasure to us uh, you are a reminder that love indeed is out there. I know Russell is proud of his second daughter. Mm. I think also you have reminded us of the real meaning of work. And so you're, you're living forward on all the things that you preach. And uh, it's changing it's changing the world one life at a time. And it's really changed mine today. Oh, you're so sweet. It was a pleasure to get to know you. And I hope it's just the beginning. It is the beginning, my friends, not only of our relationship, but of the beginning of the rest of your lives. So for this time... And until next time, that was Juliet Funk. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired.